28 degrees Celsius, relative humidity 79%. And that was the news at nine from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Janice Wong and your guest presenter is Ada Wong. Good morning, Ada. Good morning, Janice. On today's program, we're talking about a controversial decision by the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn race-based college admissions in the United States. The practice called affirmative action has been around for decades and was meant to increase campus diversity and address intergenerational inequality that have plagued black and Latino American communities. There's uh, been a mixed response from Asian Americans, with some cheering the end of race conscious admissions, but others saying it will have a negative impact on diversity. So how will this ruling affect U.S. universities and applicants from Hong Kong and elsewhere in Asia? Will it cause further? the polarization. After 9.45, we'll look at aspartame, one of the world's most common artificial sweeteners that's set to be declared a possible carcinogen later this month. Let us know what you think on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. Now to kick off our discussion this morning, we have in our Admiralty studio, James Lockett, Chairman of Democrats Abroad Hong Kong. And on the line, we have Dan Van Hoy, a member of Republicans Overseas, and Professor Jerry Postiglione, an emeritus professor at the University of Hong Kong and coordinator of the Consortium for Research on Higher Education in Asia. Good morning to all of you, and thanks for joining us on the program. Good morning. Good morning, Janice. Good morning. So um, let's start with uh, Professor Postiglione. Um, how far reaching is this ruling? Well, this ruling, Janice, I think, was uh, not unexpected. And as you probably know, uh, the state of California and the state of Michigan had already banned affirmative action back in 1998. So this is not unexpected. The society evolves, politics changes. Universities have uh, various perspectives and ways of dealing with the the uh, new policies. Right, so, and yeah, right. And the Republicans, of course, uh, they they largely backed this change. Um, and Dan Van Hoy, can you explain why? I mean, why was it needed before, and why not now? Well, uh, good morning, Janice, morning. and everyone. Uh, I have six more hours in Hong Kong, and I'm off to the USA permanently. How about that? Wow. So uh, it's an interesting timing on this. I want to say farewell to Hong Kong. I've loved my 22 years here for sure. And uh, it's an amazing place, always will be. Um, It's not just the Republicans. Uh, There are some prominent Democrats who have asserted for a long time, uh, like uh, Jonathan Turley, professor of law, uh, Alan Dershowitz, Democrat professor of law, that this simply was not right. Um, I want to. I want to read. Well, I want to read part of the the uh, Declaration of Independence upon which this Fourteenth Amendment, which is what we're focusing on today, was called the Equal Equal uh, uh, Opportunity Equal Rights Clause. We hold these. This second paragraph of the U.S. Uh, Declaration of Independence, which a lot of people like to read on July Fourth, we hold these truths to be self-evident 
self-evident that all men are created equal and they are endowed with their creator with certain unalienable rights. And so the idea that we would take and say, well, because of your color or your ethnic background, uh, we're going to give you a special preference, which is actually equity. It's not equality. Equity is when a, a person or an elite says, you know, we think you deserve special attention, special deference, and we're going to give it to you be just simply because of your ethnic background or your color of your skin. I think most people, honest people, genuine people, would say at its face that's absolutely wrong. All right, and uh, Mr. Lockett? Good morning. Good Glad morning. Thank you, thank you. Uh, I kind of disagree, and the reason why affirmative action will base upon a level playing field to give people a disadvantage from minority community. It doesn't, it doesn't extend to blacks or Hispanic, it's for all races across the board. You have poor white people can have four university and colleges. You have poor Asian American, and you have poor Latinos, and you have poor Native Hawaiians too as well, and Native, and Native Americans too. So it's a disjust, you said, based upon blacks and Hispanic, at that time, in the landmark case back in 1978, yes, it may be the case back then, but now at time involved, things have changed across the board. Laws are changing because if you take away affirmative action, why not take away the college legacy system refers to about your parents went to that school, how much money your parents gave to the school, what's the bill of name, and that's really not fair right there. The reason why I have affirmative action is have a level playing field to give equal opportunity for all people to attend college and universities. Right. So, um, uh, is there now other ways uh, to achieve that to make sure that there is diversity uh, on campus? Yes. Yes, it is. You know, um, what what President Biden, uh, his administration, looking at right now, what they plan to do is have a national conference among educators and student leaders uh, from different backgrounds and different ethnicity sit down, how can we enhance the admission policy to equal everyone across the board, not to a certain group of people, I mean to everyone. That's the important key thing, the demographic is to everyone. We're all Americans, so access to education to be affordable and to everyone across the board. Right. And Mr. Lockett, I mean, uh, now that uh, this uh, this uh, affirmative action has been overturned, um, who do you think, I mean, who will this change actually benefit and will minority students uh, suffer as a result? I would say in general, whole people will suffer from this because it's a setback. Um, you go back to the Jim Crow laws um, during that time period area where it was very hard and difficult for a person of color to get in the top league university because number one, they didn't have the money or they didn't have, they didn't go to a good high school or they came from an undeveloped area. People say, well, we don't fit in, but that should not be a criteria for admitting to school. So this, this law right here will hurt the disadvantage that people cannot afford university and college. Well, James, you need, then you need to change the Constitution because this is precisely what the Constitution says. We shall not discriminate on the basis of skin color or ethnic background, full stop, all right? 
So what needs to be done if you want that to happen? You need to propose a constitutional amendment. Uh, the, it's very clear in the 6-3 to three ruling that the majority of the court saw this that way, even some who normally vote to the liberal side. Um, and the idea that uh, you know, you're going to to simply, as the the uh, Biden administration is is often doing, saying, "Well, we don't like what the court has given us, so we're just going to find some way around it." Uh, and they never say, "Okay, we're going to abide by the court decision. We're going to be a lawless administration and uh, move forward from there." Uh, I want to just share just briefly a personal story. All right, I have a friend who's a Chinese American Chinese who graduated from law school and got an MBA. I asked her about this just this morning. I said, Here's what, here was her response. She said, well, personally, uh, I went to UCLA undergrad and absolutely loved that school. I applied for law school and was rejected while at the end of the first year of law school in San Diego, so she went on to San Diego to get her law degree, I received a letter that stated I was wrongly rejected because I was Chinese and considered too many Asians uh, at the time, and they offered me a place. So UCLA, UCLA Law School had said at that time, this was before the, the law was passed, um, you're Chinese, uh, we have too many Chinese, we can't give you a place. And they later apologized. And she was someone who grew up, um, she says here later in my conversation with her, I grew up with secondhand clothes, eating day-old food, and I worked my whole life with nothing paid for me. So I should have been treated like a black person when it came to admission because I worked full-time and supported myself. There's an, ex uh, an exemplary story of the fact that if in U.S., if you're willing to work hard, no matter your skin color, no matter your ethnic background, and push and press and aim for your goals, and get, you can get there and make it happen. Mr. Lockett? Okay. Um, some parts, uh, I agree that the Constitution needs to be changed. I agree along the areas right there. But where I disagree is that the Biden administration is not being lawless behind this. They said they make it very, very clear what we want to do. We work with this college administration, work with the university, work with other groups as well to make make the mission process practical for everyone across the board, for all Americans in general, not just for different ethnicity, for all groups itself. Now, one thing that the left, I mean, the right try to conflict is between the CRT versus affirmative action. They try to conflict together. This totally different itself. The affirmative action is based upon a set of policies that aim to promote equal opportunity for historical marginalized group of people. It's just a homogenized group of people. It doesn't say black, it doesn't say white, it doesn't say Asian American, homogenized group of people. Right. Where, where that the CRT. Again, so who decides so, that, James? James, who decides that? Who decides who's marginalized? My Chinese friend here felt she was marginalized because she was Chinese, and yet she struggled and had to work so hard to get her law degree, to get her MBA, and she did it on her own with hard work and determination. Who decides? That's what we need to change right there at the college level, okay? That's why I say we need to work together as a group of people. Republican, Democrat, need to sit down, work together, you know, put out these policy and like policy to benefit everyone across the board. Right. Mr. Lockett, um, uh, California has already passed a law. So um, what are the lessons from California about um, diversity laws? Do, do you have any stories or statistics? Yes. When, when California passed their law, um, 
the enrollment went down among minority students, okay? Um, there's a group called the Legacy 98, where that when they passed their law, only 98 applicants applied out of 5,000. Their enrollment went down, it dropped. It hurt the investigative process in there. So, so they have to look at the law because what the law is going to do, it's going to hurt these programs. Right. I just want to go back to uh, Professor Posticlione. Hello, Professor? Yes. Uh, right. I, I, yes. Hi. Yes, Ada. I'm sorry. Hi, it's Janice here. I just want to um, ask you about uh, the impact of this ruling on uh, students in Hong Kong, because there are many students in Hong Kong who study uh, at American universities. How much of an impact do you think uh, the ruling will have on them? Well, I think you can definitely say that uh, what the U.S. does with regard to policies toward ethnic minorities, uh, racial minorities, and other disadvantaged groups does uh, is has an influence around the world, uh, and uh, in some ways that's that's very positive. But I think it's worth um, it's worth reflecting back just a second because. Uh, two gentlemen uh, represented their political parties very well. Of course, in America, the two political parties interpret the Constitution in different ways, and uh, the courts, uh, depending upon who's appointing the justices, will affect the outcome of the decision. So it's very difficult uh, for the two parties to come to a complete consensus and that, of course, uh, has an effect on uh, how we see things. But if you remember, to look back to Harvard University in the early part of the 20th century, and there was a time when the examinations were dominated by white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestants. And all of a sudden, with the immigration from Europe, Many Jewish students began to score higher than the Anglo-American students. And Harvard instituted what it called a character indicator, character indicator. And uh, the reason uh, uh, I mention that, many of you who are up on this issue probably know that uh, the reason that Harvard was uh, restricting the number of Asians attending Harvard University was because they were rated lower on traits like positive personality, uh, like ability, uh, courage, kindness, or whatever. So uh, we must also uh, take a break from uh, looking at the courts and the, and the legislature and look at the universities themselves and what they're doing. Uh, this is this. Uh, this is documented very much by a lot of the research. And the other related factor, which is coming to the fore now as affirmative action is uh, no longer uh, uh, able to be used, are race indicators, particularly race cannot be an indicator for, for admission. It can be written into an essay uh, for admission, but it cannot be uh, considered a, a, a factor so the uh, emphasis will move more toward, uh, toward economy and income and wealth. And as we know, uh, since the 1980s, the gap uh, in income in the United States and around the world, and this includes this country where we are now, has grown tremendously. So the, even, even as far as the, uh, <clears throat> the uh, 
uh, <clears throat> the uh, Asian, uh, um, I mean, the World Economic Forum has cited inequality as one of the major crises of our time. So what happens if you look at the top-tier universities, and the researcher Chetty and his team has, has done this, they found that there are more students admitted to the top-tier Ivy League colleges, more students in the top 1% income bracket than in the bottom 60% income bracket. So as you can see, universities themselves uh, have uh, something to consider when they begin to admit students. And the reason for all of this is, of course, diversity is important because after students enter university, their education, the quality of education, depends very much on the students that are their classmates, not only because they learn more about the country that they are part of by crisscrossing and interacting with the different sectors of the population, but it also helps them to think out of the box when they become engineers mm. and scientists. Uh, professor. So in short, in short um, the implications for Hong Kong are tremendous. We do not, we have generations of South Asians in Hong Kong over and over again that are underrepresented, whether they're Nepalese, Pakistani, Indian, or others, they're underrepresented in the uh, population of the universities. That's the original question, I believe. Sorry to go around, but I think that uh, what the gentlemen have been discussing needs to be maybe put in some historical context with some of the uh, research as a background to what they were saying. Right, and... And, uh, and, and they were speaking very, uh, very... They represented their political parties very well. Yeah, thank you, Professor. And, and following up on what you said, um, I, I read a, an Economist article uh, which uh, said that um, if Harvard... Um, wants a diverse student body and, um, you know, it could uh, eliminate preferences for children of alumni or big donors and become far less white, wealthy and privileged. So um, the law might not affect yeah. them. Um, would you agree, uh, Mr. Lockett or Mr. Van Hoy? Yes, yes, I agree. It go back, what I said before, it's about the college legacy system because they based upon how much money or who, went to your, who in your family went to their school. So, order to have equal op equal opportunity education, you have to eliminate it too as well. You don't eliminate it from the action. Also eliminate the college legacy system. All right. So, so Dan Van. Um, well, um, yeah. I read through almost all of the opinion today. It's quite long. Uh, yeah, two hundred forty-six pages. <laughs> yeah, one of the one of the main points that's made is. Uh, eliminating racial discrimination means eliminating all of it. So I think, I hope, I would hope that's something both Democrats, Republicans, Independents can agree on, that, that indeed uh, we need to try to root it out wherever it exists so that people have a, uh, a fair chance. Uh, we, Americans used to pride ourselves in being fair people. We would go to great exploits internally and externally to try to promote and make fairness happen, but we've slipped away from being fair. And now we have people, James mentioned critical race theory, which actually says, uh, you know, if you're white, you really, uh, 
you really have a debt to people of color, and you need oh, to... excuse me, it doesn't say that. I'm sorry to correct that you. Is, I'm sure it I certainly does, Professor. I've studied okay, it. Professor, Professor yeah. go ahead. That's basically what critical race theory is. It says we're going to fight discrimination with more discrimination by giving people of color special oh, preference. No, that's not true. That's not true. That is exactly true. No, critical race theory is the academic framework that examines how race and racism intersect with social culture, in legal system. Talking about how it's being applied, James, how it's being implied in the current political and social climate. All right, but, and, and Professor Postiglione, what's your, yeah. what's your understanding? Yeah, critical race theory is not taught in primary schools or in secondary schools. It's basically something that came out of the law schools, and it, it focuses on what's called institutional discrimination. And many ethnic groups and racial groups in the United States have been discriminated against. A critical race theory, uh, there's an impression that it's only about African Americans, but it also covers Asian Americans. Uh, the United States challenge as a multi-ethnic and multi-racial country is to find ways to unify the country in order for its development to continue. And it is a country that uh, has a First Amendment on, on free speech and is basically very open about the kinds of thinking that are permitted. So the critical race theory really represents, it brings out the, uh, the conflict between the political parties very well because um, they use, each one uses critical race theory, again, for its own interpretation. So, for example, if, if you, and, and your original question was about how uh, the U.S. situation might have implications for Hong Kong, uh, you can, in any school in Hong Kong, talk about critical race theory, of course, and there will be no problem at all. So this, this brings out to you also the fact that you've got to look at different cases, different society, even within countries, you've got to look at uh, different uh, uh, different groups. And um, from an academic point of view, by the way, most of the discussion so far has been about getting in. Most ethnic racial minorities do not attend that top tier, the top tier Ivy League colleges, which represent a tiny, less than 5% or less of, of all of the colleges and universities in the United States. What's more important is what happens after they get in. As academics in universities, we have to identify those people who are from marginalized backgrounds and ensure that everyone has a chance to succeed. What often happens in the U.S. is after groups get in the university, we think that the task is over. And there's a high dropout rate for low-income students. All right. Uh, Professor, <laughs> Professor, we're going to have to take a break for the news very soon. But before we do that, um, because uh, Dan Van Hoy won't be staying with us for the, for the whole discussion. Um, Dan Van Hoy, um, when, when you talked about uh, a lot about uh, fairness and equal opportunities. And uh, also earlier, Mr. Lockett, he, he mentioned uh, legacy admissions. Do you think um, to really ensure a fair system, the, the uh, legacy admissions uh, arrangement has to, has to, has to go? Honestly, I don't have an opinion on that, but I, I would uh, say this. Uh, Hong Kong parents, don't send your kids to the school in the USA. 
they have become indoctrination centers. They're teaching kids what to think rather than how to think. That's not true. I'm sorry I had to interject right there. That's not true. Critical race theory, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, which isn't any of those. So parents, watch out. Send them to Singapore. That type, that type of thinking Mr. right Lockett? there. That type of thinking right there. That's why we so devices right now in the U.S. The type of logic of thinking on 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 the, on the right. That's not true. It's absolutely true. No, that's not true at all. No, sir, it um, is. I'm happy to debate you anytime, any place. I'm happy to debate you too. Come down let's right do now. Let's, let's go to the pub, have a drink. We have a debate about this. Absolutely. All right, all right, um, Mr. Lockett and Mr. Van Hoy. Uh, we have to take a break for the news. Uh, thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Dan Van Hoy, a member of Republicans Overseas, and James Lockett, a chairman of Democrats Abroad Hong Kong. And uh, Professor Postiligoni, we uh, will have to continue our discussion after the news in around uh, two minutes' time when we will be joined by an Asian-American studies scholar based in Hong Kong. Now, if you want to share your views on today's topics, you can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3, email us at Backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266 and uh, here's a quick look at the weather sunny intervals and a few showers the top temperature will be around 32 degrees winds moderate south to southwesterlies right now it's uh, 29 degrees relative humidity 79 percent it's now 9 30 with a new summary here's Stu Pryke An NGO has warned that reluctance to unmask among some of Hong Kong's young people may reflect a deeper social anxiety in the post-COVID era. The Evangelical Lutheran Church Social Service said more than 80% of primary and secondary students it polled still wear masks and warned that the problem might not be confined to young people. The building's department has revealed that pieces of concrete that plunged from a tall building into a busy Mongkok street on Sunday came from an illegal canopy attached to a 16th floor flat. And the Chinese Manufacturers Association says visitors will once again be able to enjoy food during its biggest annual event, December's Hong Kong Brands and Products Expo, ending a pandemic-era ban. And we'll have more news for you on RTHK at 10 o'clock. Parents have been looking after us for so long, now it's our turn. The HKMC Annuity Plan offers a stable monthly income to parents for life. With this lifetime protection, parents can enjoy a hassle-free retirement and we can have peace of mind knowing that they are taken care of. Call 2512-5000 or visit our website to learn more. The product involves risks. The plan is subject to terms and conditions. Employees working in a hot environment should take precautions against heat stroke. Heat stroke can cause shock and even death. Employers should assess the risk and take preventive measures, such as enhancing ventilation, providing cool drinking water and shades, and arranging flexible work schedules and rest breaks. Employees should use mechanical aids and wear suitable clothes. All these can prevent heat stroke. For more details, visit the Labor Department website or call 2852-4041. Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Tuesday morning with Ada Wong and me, Janice Wong. Still with us on the program is Professor Jerry Postiglione, an emeritus professor at the University of Hong Kong and a coordinator of the Consortium for Research on Higher Education in Asia. Also joining us now in our Kowloon Tong studio is Professor Jason Ko, an Asian Ameri- Asia America Studies scholar based in Hong Kong who researches film and media. Good morning, Professor Ko. 
morning. Thanks for joining us on the program. Um, so what's your uh, take on the change? What's my take on the change? Well, to me, this is another example of a sort of long history of Asians being used as a sort of figure or symbol in a sort of discourse of black-white relations. Uh, you notice that the plaintiffs in the case against Harvard in North Carolina are a group of anonymous Asian Americans and a group called, uh, what is it, uh, uh, a Coalition for Fair Admissions. Now, this group is led by a Republican conservative activist named Bloom, who actually did a case in Texas where the plaintiff was a white student and the case did not do well. And he came out and he said, I need Asians. I need Asians for my case so that I can go to the court and actually get some sympathy. So this is just another example of how Asians are used as a wedge, right, in a sort of black-white politics. Now, we can talk about, you know, the numbers, right? The truth is that once you have affirmative action leave, then suddenly you have a precipitous drop in the enrollment of black and Latino students. This is the case in California um, when uh, Proposition 209 passed when I was uh, an undergrad. And I also think that, uh, Ada, you make a really great point about legacy admissions. I mean, we don't want affirmative action, you know, uh, against affirmative action for people of color, right? But then we can have affirmative action for rich people for people who are students whose parents went to that school, or athletes, right? Or even in the case of men, you know, uh, there's actually a huge gap between the number of enrollees who are women versus men or male identifying. And actually, uh, there's affirmative action for men. It's actually easier for men to get into school than women because they want a sort of close to parity between uh, gender, gender ratios. So why are all these sorts of affirmative action allowed? You know, there's a, Really great line, you know, from Orwell, right? All men are created equal, right? Like our Republican constituents said, but some are more equal than others. And even in the Constitution, it starts with the words, all men are created equal, right? Now, who's included in men? Back when the Constitution was written, only the only people who were considered men was obviously not women, but also people uh, who were landowners, right? And had property, and they were the only ones allowed to vote. So our understanding of what equality is changes over time. Um, but my main concern as an Asian American is that, yes, it's true, Harvard did discriminate against Asians, okay? There is, there are, there is evidence that they said things like Asians are automatons. Now, that's not okay. That's discrimination. But does that mean that we shouldn't look at race at all when it comes to, you know, who, who or how admissions are processed? Or even that, why is it that the government or you know, these Republican think tanks or NGOs need to come in and decide, hey, uh, we're gonna tell this university what you're allowed to or not allowed to look at. All right, I have an email here from mm -hmm. Bowen, and uh, Bowen says, uh, when the US Supreme Court decided in a 2003 case to endorse the view that student body diversity was a compelling state interest that could justify using race in university admissions programs, it imposed several conditions, including the need for an end point for those programs. Writing for the majority, Justice Sandra J. O'Connor said, we expect that 25 years from now, the use of racial preference will no longer be necessary. Both universities in the present case, uh, Harvard and uh, University of North Carolina, also failed to meet the conditions. The court's ruling is reportedly in line with 74% of public opinion, unlike the Dobbs decision it made last June overturning Roe versus Wade. And uh, that email is from Bowen. So, um, Professor Ko, um, do, do, um, do you know what the uh, general um, reaction uh, is of Asian American communities in the US? I mean, yeah. it seems quite split, right? Yeah, I think, well, 
Okay. It really depends upon how you think about that split. But first, let me say I want to commend Boan for this uh, very well, well-informed uh, opinion. Maybe he should be a guest or she should be a guest next time. Um, yes, you know, uh, that is one of the major talking points of the way that affirmative action was defended in this case, which is that diversity is an important state good. Right. And yet at the same time, one of the stipulations is that these diversity initiatives at the end should end because we should reach a point of diversity where it's no longer needed. Now, first off, are we at that point? <laughs> are these schools more diverse, especially at the top tier? I don't think so. Okay. And secondly, yes, diversity is a state good and not just a state good. It's good in all decision making. You know, as you know, groupthink causes major problems. Just ask major financial institutions that crash because of one rogue trader who didn't have anyone to disagree with him. At the same time, you know, affirmative action policies were put into place, not just because diversity is good for everybody, but because there was actual social inequality where uh, many, many minority groups were disenfranchised and not doing well. And this actually also included Asians. So before 1965, when, um, when the immigration laws changed, Asian Americans actually were amongst the people who scored very, very low on these tests, who were doing very poorly. And actually, in the 70s and the 80s, Asian Americans actually benefited from affirmative action. So counter to our Republican constituents' claims, actually, there are people who are of Asian descent who actually got to go to Harvard, who actually got to go to these great law schools or these excellent universities because of affirmative action. Now, after 1965, we have a very selective visa process where the people who are allowed to come to the U.S. come on a certain type of visa, an education visa. So if your parents come to the U.S. because they happen to have a master's or attending for university or something like that, well, then your likelihood of going to a great school and performing well is also much higher. And this is the case of many recent immigrants from East Asia, right, and also from South Asia, like India. However, Asian America is not monolithic, right? Asian America has many, many different groups, including one of the groups that has the lowest ro uh, level of educational attainment in the United States, and that's Southeast Asians. And many Southeast Asians, <clears throat> excuse me, not all, actually are the products of American imperial empire in Southeast Asia. So their parents might be refugees. Right. And so this group is also lumped into this Asian group and those groups, they do need affirmative action because the United States bombed their homelands and they came here really, really poor. And we do need to help them get into universities. Right. So right. Let's so, go to how about let's go to uh, uh, Professor uh, Postiglione. Professor? Yeah, so, I think so, I'd still like to listen to Jason. <laughs> well, well done, Jason. Uh, I think you, you've um, really painted a very fair picture uh, so in order to look at the, the court decision uh, on affirmative action, the, what, what you've said needs to be taken into, into consideration and context. I mean, you, I think that helps a great deal. Professor, do you, do, you agree uh, with, I, uh, do you agree with uh, Professor Ko that uh, in this case, uh, Asian Americans are, are being used as uh, what he described, a wedge? Uh, they, they may be in some cases, yes. I think they have been used as a wedge. But the, the, the point is, the most important point is, is that uh, there have been many, uh, particularly Chinese Americans, who have been disadvantaged uh, by the current, uh, the way the policies have implemented, particularly by, by universities like Harvard, even though many uh, Hong Kong Chinese are, are donating to Harvard. I mean, I'm sorry, to, I hope that they, they had some influence on the admission process. Um, but, I, but I think that um, 
Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't want to go on too long. I don't know what the specific question is. Right, uh, uh, Professor, yeah. Has his, yeah. I, I have a specific question. I think we all yeah. want uh, more equity in education because equity is very important. But it's very difficult to achieve, and it shouldn't start from university level. It should start from basic education, so start with kindergarten. But um, I think all over the world we know that um, – um, you know, low socioeconomic background is actually a hurdle to to a better basic education. So, so they, you know, I I don't know why, but they yeah. surely they don't learn as as well. You know, in elementary school and in high school, um, this is not just in the USA. This happens in Hong Kong as well. We have these South Asian students, you know, who have not done well. And uh, if you look at um, University of Hong Kong, yes, um, the pop the students cohort is now more diverse because we have international students but if you look at our local students there's still sort of like a privilege somewhere that that is sort of invisible professor yeah i certainly agree and you know it might help to reflect a little bit on uh, the country as a whole because uh, i don't know if people are aware uh, in china there's 120 million uh, non-han chinese the government has a policy of adding points to the Gaokao scores, to the entrance university yes. entrance examination scores of ethnic minorities. Now, of the 55 designated ethnic minorities in China, there are 10 of them who perform better than the national average, including high Chinese, but most of them perform at a lower level, and they get extra points added onto their scores. They can get remedial education when they enter university at the beginning. There are other, other sorts of benefits. And China also has policies benefiting poverty-level counties, or counties whose levels, of course, poverty has uh, you know, officially been uh, eliminated, but there are counties with low levels. And those students, economically disadvantaged, even Han Chinese students, get, uh, get into university on certain kinds of programs. So the country as a whole has its own policies for what's called preferential treatment. They don't call it affirmative action. But I think Hong Kong maybe can learn from both cases, from the U.S. case and from the China case, to, to improve the situation a little bit uh, as, the t- as time goes on, because this will be an ongoing challenge. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Jason Ko, um, Professor, uh, President Biden, uh, of course, disagreed uh, with the court's decision, and he proposed a new standard to take into account uh, the adversity a student has overcome when selecting among qualified students. And um, he might direct the Department of Education to analyze practices that help build a more inclusive and diverse student body, and practices that do not. Now, that seems a bit watered down to me. That seems to be going nowhere. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, thanks, Ada. And thanks for your really insightful questions. Um, <clears throat> let me start by saying that uh, California, the UC system, has been dealing with this for over 20 years now. Um, they've invested over half a billion US dollars in working on recruitment, on trying to find ways around or to create a greater level of diversity and inclusion in the universities um, without relying on uh, race or kind of a tick mark, you could say, or sorts of quotas. Um, there have been mixed results. Um, on the one hand, um, uh, you've had a, a almost kind of level of uh, representation at the, at the UCs in the six kind of what might be called like a lower tier uh, universities, um, where the, uh, the percentage of Californians in those schools matches the sort of racial composition of the state. But this is drastically different at Berkeley and UCLA. 
Um, so, you know, and that really is kind of what comes down to this at the heart of this issue, right? Is the Asian American plaintiffs and the, you know, represented by Bloom, uh, they went after these two top tier universities who really don't like, you know, Professor uh, Postiglione was mentioning, don't really uh, represent all of the United States. Okay, they only represent that exclusive territory. You know, of you know how many how many students are admitted to Harvard every year? Like even a thousand, two thousand. You know, and yet this court decision affects hundreds of thousands. I don't know how many students apply every year, right? And so the real question is, is that certain plaintiffs felt as though they were discriminated against not by the whole system, but by specific exclusive institutions, right? Now. Is it the same if you go to Berkeley versus you go to, let's say, UC Merced? You know, in a sort of socioeconomic way, yes, both of them will be ladders to a, to the next economic level, and they will help your family. If you're the first generation to go to a UC, that's really fantastic for you. But these aren't the plaintiffs. The plaintiffs are people whose parents are very well educated, who got to go to lots of great prep schools, and they want to get into that exclusive area to reach that higher echelon, that higher tier. Now. In my opinion, that is not the on in those places, the discrimination on a racial basis is not the main issue. The main issue is that these are bastions of privilege. These are places where the white upper class elite has ruled over. And as Professor Postiglione mentioned, in the first place, they found ways to eliminate Jews. Right. And so now that they think that diversity is actually a benefit to the privileged people because it'll make them more conscious or whatever, then they want to introduce more. But I. I'm a bit skeptical about that sort of thing as well. But to get back to the sort of point, what do we do next, right? Equity is still something that's important. We still want a better, you know, a better society, right? One that's fairer. And so the UCs have been trying to do it in a sort of more holistic way, right? So, um, and there was something that was in the ruling that said that, yes, students can mention about how race is a part of their life, is a part of their experience. And yes, uh, the admissions case cannot say we're going to let you in because you are this particular ethnicity or this race. But if you mention how you have been, uh, you know, uh, experienced, you know, these issues of, of being impoverished, of being ethnically discriminated against or sexually or in terms of gender, well, then they can take that into consideration if you write that into your experience and background. So there will be other ways to address this equity. And us as universities, as scholars, as thinkers or, you know, people who care, we have to find better ways. We can't be lazy. And we have to look for ways to, to make the world more, to make our universities and our cohorts more, more diverse and inclusive. Right. But, but do you think this change will, will actually uh, further divide society in the US? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that or Twitter, I don't know. <laughs> um, yes, we are very polarized. And there are certain talking points that are used by the left and the right, you know, that have been simplified you know, and demonized, right? You know, like this idea of critical race theory being something that's, you know, discriminatory against white people. No, critical race theory simply means that you critically examine race and theorize about what it means. That is what critical race theory is. Now, polarization comes from using sound bites. Polarization comes from simplifying things to the point where people can just say, that aligns or doesn't align with my basic values, and then I'm gonna be against that. Now, this particular case, maybe we will find more ways to be more nuanced, to think more in depth, to think about how class, race, gender, sexuality all intersect and cause experiences of discrimination. And then maybe we can find a more inclusive and diverse way forward. 
All right, uh, Professor Ko, we have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Professor Jason Ko, an Asia-American studies scholar based in Hong Kong who researches film and media. Also, many thanks to uh, Professor Jerry Postiglione, an emeritus professor at the University of Hong Kong and coordinator of the Consortium for Research on Higher Education in Asia. It's now 9.48, and in a moment, we'll speak to an expert about aspartame, one of the world's most common artificial sweeteners that's set to be declared a possible carcinogen by the World Health Organization later this month. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. I'm Gilly of Consumer Council. Happy birthday, LTHK, for your 95th anniversary. May I wish you always filled with positive energy, continue to discover and report accurate, impartial and objective consumer news for consumers to shop smartly every day. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88266 and have your say. Now, a popular artificial sweetener, aspartame, is found in thousands of products around the world, from diet sodas to some chewing gum and ice cream. They, they, that, and uh, it may be listed later this month by the World Health Organization as a possibly carcinogenic to humans. So how concerned should we be? To tell us more, we're now joined on the line by Dr. Winnie Wong, head of the Hong Kong Metropolitan University's Division of Health and Science. Good morning, Dr. Wong. Hi, good morning. Thanks for joining us on the program. Um, so what will it mean if this uh, artificial sweetener, aspartame, is uh, listed later this month as uh, possibly carcinogenic to humans uh, by the WHO? Actually, uh, this is uh, WHO's uh, Cancer Research Agency, the International Agency for Research on Cancer, IARC, based on some systematic review of the available evidences uh, to make this decision. But uh, indeed, uh, we need to depend on all the evidences to be announced. Um, it is, um, might be uh, too premature to interpret the decision, and there's no need to be panicked at the moment. Um, for example, uh, what we um, identify as the potentially cancer causing, uh, indeed, according to the IARC, um, the, um, uh, there are different groups from uh, Group 1, Group 2A, Group 2B, and Group 3, so uh, currently, uh, the IARC uh, classified aspartame as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. Um, according to the uh, definition of this uh, group, it is uh, used when the evidence of potential carcinogenicity in humans is limited. That means uh, there's, uh, uh, at the moment, it's due some limited evidence uh, for use in humans. And as well as uh, the evidence in some experimental animals is less than sufficient that means um, these uh, evidences are quite big uh, for uh, human beings as well as uh, the experimental animals. animals. So um, that means uh, we might need uh, more research uh, to be conducted uh, in order to confirm whether aspartame is really uh, carcinogenic. So uh, at the time being, uh, I don't think uh, we have to be uh, too panicked on that. But of course, uh, it's uh, quite good uh, as a signal for uh, all the consumers to be aware of the um, uh, this kind of uh, artificial sweetness for the consumption, uh, say, for example, the consumption level, the consumption frequency, etc. Um, yes, yeah, so Dr. Wong, um, 
but it's still uh, not certain, you know, what sort of um, potential cancer risk uh, would that be uh, coming yeah. from aspartame? Because the, um, you know, this is widely used. If you, if you have a, a soft drink or if you have uh, anything, you actually don't know whether it contains aspartame. So as consumers, we can only worry, but we don't know what to do, right? Mm, yes, you're right. Uh, indeed, uh, according to uh, WHO in uh, 1981, uh, the acceptable daily intake of aspartame has been identified, which is uh, about uh, 40 milligrams per kilogram body weight. That means, for example, if a, pro, uh, if an, uh, uh, if a person uh, weighs about uh, 60 kilograms, that means uh, um, he or she can uh, be able to tolerate about from uh, between 12 to uh, and 36 would, would, would that be like one can of soda or like a diet soda? Yes, yes. Uh, or or more, uh, more or less, right? More, is, is it, it contains more in, in the soda? Um, actually, it depends. It depends on the uh, manufacturer uh, on how much uh, aspartame has been added into uh, different uh, products. For example, nowadays, uh, there are quite a number of uh, diet cooks diet uh, sodas uh, that they are using a mixture of the uh, sweeteners. So um, according to the uh, data, uh, as I've mentioned, that uh, about uh, not more than 40 milligrams per kilogram of body weight, um, that means uh, if a person uh, weights about 60 kilograms, uh, they can drink okay, between 12 and 36 cans of uh, diet soda. Uh, it's depending on the amount of the aspartame in the beverage. So uh, I, I believe that uh, most probably uh, people might not be uh, drinking too, uh, so many uh, cans of these kind of uh, beverages every day. But uh, this might be an alert for the uh, people say, uh, I, I can uh, drink one or two cans uh, per day, but not very, very much in a day. Right. And uh, Dr. Wong, I mean, this sweetener, it, it has been reviewed multiple times by the uh, U.S. Food and mm. Drug Administration, which says yeah. uh, aspartame is safe for the general safe. population. Um, yes. can, you, can you tell us a bit about uh, what uh, previous studies have shown? Are there any like data or figures? Um, yes, yes. Actually, uh, as I've mentioned, that uh, WHO uh, has uh, done uh, uh, the researches. Okay, uh, the, these studies. So that's why uh, we come up with this uh, um, amount. But I think uh, due to the uh, global changes, the environmental changes, the diet changes, uh, all, all these uh, uh, issues that maybe uh, WHO or uh, its agency is uh, collecting more evidences um, according to uh, these changes. So uh, we might uh, just uh, wait and see uh, how the um, uh, how the uh, regulations or the recommendations to be announced uh, in mid July. Right, and why do you think uh, the decision or the decision is being taken now, or, or why the WHO is uh, is thinking about it now? Mm, as I've mentioned, that I think uh, WHO uh, as an international authority to um, monitor the uh, non-communicable diseases globally. So uh, maybe uh, due to the uh, different factors. Uh, the global changes, the diet changes. So I think uh, this move uh, might serve to um, formulate or uh, update the existing uh, guidelines on healthy diets that uh, drive all the uh, people 
to establish a lifelong healthy eating habits and also uh, dietary uh, quality to be improved uh, as well as uh, to decrease the uh, risk of uh, the non-communicable diseases uh, globally. Right, and um, I guess uh, the younger people who eat out a lot uh, might mm. come across aspartame um, uh, as an, you know, as a sweetener, mm. but um, uh, I guess um, some diabetes people um, mm. might be also using that. Now, uh, should they be more cautious or are there any safer alternatives for, for diabetic people? Mm, yes, you're right. Uh, so uh, usually uh, some uh, diabetic patients or uh, some weight uh, control uh, patients might uh, use uh, aspartame or uh, artificial sweeteners uh, to, uh, in their diet. So uh, indeed, uh, what we um, advise uh, these patients to use their sweeteners is just in a transition to uh, support them uh, to uh, um, uh, reduce the dependency on sugar. But ultimately, uh, we will uh, recommend uh, all these uh, patients or uh, the regular or uh, normal persons uh, to um, not to use uh, the switchiness uh, as much. Yeah. So, um, as uh, if you uh, ask for the uh, alternatives, indeed, uh, we have um, other than these artificial switchiness, we have uh, some uh, sugar alcohols, uh, which is. Uh, um, normally um, present in our daily life, in our daily food. So, um, for example, uh, the erythritol, the uh, isomalt, the mannitol, uh, xylitol, uh, like these are uh, some sugar alcohols that uh, could be used um, uh, as an alternative. Uh, these are uh, also like um, uh, we, we can uh, identify as uh, the sweeteners because uh, they will provide very, very low calories, but uh, also uh, the uh, sweetness to our, uh, for our taste. Uh, but just because uh, they, are, they are not be able to digest uh, in our um, intestine, so that uh, they will not provide uh, too much uh, calories for us, but provide the sweetness. So uh, these kinds of uh, sugar alcohols uh, is an uh, alternative um, uh, for these uh, diabetic patients or weight uh, control uh, persons. But uh, as mentioned, that ultimately we will uh, expect uh, these patients to uh, try to uh, reduce uh, their dependency on the sugar, on the sugar favor, and uh, try to use some uh, natural sweetness. Uh, for example, if they uh, want to um, uh, have some uh, sweet food, uh, we, may, uh, we may use uh, some uh, fruits, okay? So uh, using the uh, natural uh, favor, uh, to replace uh, these uh, sweeteners. Right. Well, what about uh, when you talk about uh, other sweeteners? Are you are you talking about uh, others that are available in the market? For example, like monk fruit. Mm. Is that is that are you talking about that kind of sweetener? Yes, yes, yes. Um, say, for example, I think uh, people might uh, know the xylitol, uh, the mannitol, uh, which uh, will be uh, used in chewing gums and also the uh, Chinese mooncake uh, and uh, some uh, desserts. All right, uh, Dr. Wong, uh, we'll have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Dr. Winnie Wong, head of the Hong Kong Metropolitan University's Division of Health and Science. Many thanks also to you who commented or emailed us today and to our guest presenter, Ada Wong, and producer, Raphael. I'll be back with another episode of Back Chat tomorrow with Mike Rouse.